So where we're jumping into things tonight, this whole idea of church, it has well and truly taken off. Uh, in, in a space of what is only a couple of months, uh, the church has gone from 120 believers in Acts 1, uh, and then by the time we hit Acts 2, it's 3,000 believers, Acts 4, it's 5,000 believers, and then from that point, Luke, the author of Acts, sort of gives up, and he stops giving us numbers, and he just starts to say, and more were added to their number daily, uh, until in Acts 5, it gets to the point where we're told that more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, that however you actually want to count, however you want to look at it, the early church is booming at this point in Scripture. So much so that you almost get the impression that things are getting a little bit out of hand. I mean, the apostles have already been arrested once for preaching the gospel, uh, and then you start getting these weird situations like Ananias and Sapphira, where people are dropping over dead for giving with the wrong attitude. Uh, and then last week, Sandy walked us through the fact that there are just these these crowds of like hundreds and thousands of people coming into Jerusalem to get a taste of this whole movement of Jesus thing, just to just see what is going on. And, and it's crazy. People are dragging their sick out into the streets, hoping the apostles are going to walk past and their shadow is going to heal people. Um, and, and it's actually, as you read through the start of Acts chapter 5, it's almost like the, the, the public is actually starting to worship and glorify the apostles that we're getting into a little bit of a, a tense situation. And so that's what I want you to imagine as we jump back into the story tonight. It's a very crowded Jerusalem. There's a lot of people there. It's bustling, it's busy, and it's also a very tense Jerusalem. It's sort of this moment where everything is about to explode. All right, Acts chapter 5, verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. All right, so we meet our old friends, the Sadducees, and they're sort of the ruling religious authority in Jerusalem, and they, they look around at everything that is going on, this, this boiling pot of a moment, and they go, no, we need to stop this. Uh, and it's interesting because last time we saw the Sadducees, uh, they were also arresting the apostles, uh, but last time we were told it was actually over an issue of theology that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, uh, they didn't believe in a personal Messiah, that's why they were sad, you see. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I can't help myself. Um, but they, they definitely didn't believe that a no-name carpenter from a nowhere town was the savior. And so they arrest the apostles because they have this theological disagreement with them. And what we were told in Acts 4 is that they arrested the apostles because they were greatly annoyed at what they were teaching. But see, what has happened is we've shifted away from that and we've moved to this area where we're told the Sadducees are filled with jealousy. And the word there for jealousy is zealous, which is where we get our word zealous or zealot in English from. And the root of that word literally means to be hot enough to boil over. That there is this fervorance and this, this heat in the, the jealousy that the Sadducees hold towards the apostles. And the reason I think the Sadducees are so jealous is because people are moving away from the old way of things. They're moving away from the temple and the sacrificial system because, you know, Jesus has fulfilled all of that, and they're moving instead towards the teaching of the apostles. And what that means for the Sadducees is they're literally watching their power, watching their influence slip through their fingers as people are drifting away from the old temple system to this new church. 
And again, the, the reason people are actually shifting across is because something is happening. I mean, the Sadducees are probably bumping into people on the streets and they're like, why weren't you at church on Saturday? What, what's going on here? And people are like, well, I heard you preach the great message on Isaiah. I'm sure it was riveting. Uh, but this Peter guy, he healed my grandma. Like, she didn't have a leg last week, and I took her to church, and I, we prayed for her, and now she's got a leg, so I'm going to go over to that church because something is actually happening. And so the Sadducees, as a result of that, they are filled with jealousy. And look, this isn't the point of tonight's message, so you can just have this little one for free, but do you know you cannot simultaneously be filled with a spirit of jealousy and be filled with the Holy Spirit? Because you see, what jealousy will do is it'll take all your attention, it'll take your, your focus, it'll take all your desires, and it'll point it all inwards. It'll say, it's all about me, it's all about myself, it's all about I, it's all about getting whatever I can, whereas the Holy Spirit will do the exact opposite. The Holy Spirit will always take your attention and your desires and your focus, and it will put it firmly on Jesus. That it, it takes your focus off yourself and onto your Savior. And so the Sadducees, they look at what is going on and they say, okay, it needs to end. And so what they decide to do is they arrest the apostles because clearly that worked so well last time. Uh, but this time they don't just arrest the preaching team, Peter and John, they go ahead and they arrest the whole church staff. Uh, verse 19, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and he brought them out and he said to them, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people the words of this life. All right, so first point for tonight. God is a God who rescues. See, I don't know where each and every one of you are tonight. I don't know where you are on your journey with God and where you are in a personal sense, but I think there's probably at least a few of us sitting here tonight where we can sort of relate with the apostles because we feel like we're sitting behind some sort of prison bars. Uh, and whether it, maybe it's like an addiction or a habit that you can't kick and you know, you've tried and you've done all the right things and you're getting help and you're seeing counseling and you're doing all, all like the things you're supposed to do, but it's like no matter how hard you try, no matter how many things you put in place, you just can't seem to kick the habit. Or, or maybe it's a, a feeling of depression and I know that's the worst for Christians because we, we know we're supposed to have this thing like joy and, and hope and peace and, and all the other promises we get in the Bible. And you look at your circumstances, you look at like your family situation, and it's amazing, work is going great, you've got enough finances to get by, but you wake up in the morning and it's like you just can't turn the happy on. And you don't know what to do with that. And you can't bring it to your small group because they don't know how to deal with that either. Maybe it's debt, or a string of broken relationships, or, or maybe you're just angry, and you just don't know why. And it's like, whatever this thing is, whatever it is that, that, that you feel is like a prison uh, just a bar standing before you, you, you don't know what to do with it, you don't know how to process it, and, and you just feel stuck. And so what we need to grapple with tonight before we go any further in the story is the truth of the matter is God is a God who rescues. God is a God who saves, who redeems, who, who takes us out of this place of bondage and brings us into a place of freedom. And ultimately what that means is, is God will save us from the penalty of sin. 
He will save us from the power of sin in our lives and eventually he will save us from the very presence of sin as we enter into glory. But while we are here on this earth, that also means God can save us from what feels like an impossible situation. That God can actually rescue us out of depression. He can actually bring us out of a place of addiction. He can rescue our broken relationships and he can take us out of debt. That God is a God who wants you to walk in freedom. And so I don't know who that's for tonight, but I feel like that was a really important thing to bring to the forefront. That if God can rescue a whole bunch of apostles sitting in jail 2,000 years ago, then he can do the same in your situation tonight. And if that is you, we would love to walk alongside you. We would love to um, pray with you and help you in any practical ways we can. And um, yeah, you're, just, you're not supposed to stay tra- trapped behind those prison bars. But look, a- a- as beautiful as that is, I don't actually think that's the main focus of what Luke is trying to get across here. Because when you read through that verse, and if you're reading too quickly, you can actually almost miss that a miracle has happened here, right? It's like a little passing line in the middle of a big paragraph, and then uh, Luke just moves on with the story. Uh, And what we find is that this isn't the only time in the book of Acts where prison doors miraculously swing open wide. Uh, It happens again in Acts 12, and then again in Acts 16, and in both of those situations, Luke gives us way more detail. Uh, We're told how many prison guards there are standing watch over the prisoners, Uh, We're told how many chains are being used to hold them down. Uh, We're given details like uh, the fact that they're singing hymns or that they're they're praising God, and then the miracle actually uh, happens, and we're told details about the angel, the fact there's an earthquake, that uh, Luke gives us a tremendous amount of detail in both of those other two cases. But we get none of that here, right? And see, the reason I think Luke does that is because It's not so much that the rescue isn't important, but Luke is far more concerned with what happens after the rescue. See, this angel, he doesn't just come and rescue the apostles and just let them wander off and do their own thing. He he turns to them and he gives them this really specific instruction from God. He says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. See, what, what the angel is doing in this moment is he's turning to the apostles And he's saying, hey, you haven't actually just been rescued for the sake of it. You've been rescued for a purpose. That what you need to do is you need to go back to the temple, you need to go back to Solomon's portico, and you need to keep on preaching all the words of this life. And church, the same is true for us today. That yes, God is a God who redeems. Yes, God is a God who saves. Yes, God is a God who can take us from bondage into freedom. Uh, But the truth of the matter is God does not rescue us for the sake of the rescue. He doesn't rescue us just so we can live a comfortable life, just so we can come to church every Sunday, just so we can do small groups or go to work. No, God rescued each and every one of us so that we can be relentlessly obedient to the call that he has on our lives. Or to put that in a slightly different way, God does not rescue us for our own preferences. He rescues us for his purposes. And like, just for a second, put yourself in the apostles' shoes, right? Because if, if you actually follow through with the pattern of what is happening here, it doesn't look good for them. I mean, so a couple of weeks ago, they, they healed this man, right? Uh, he's 
30-year-old uh, a man who's been there for 30 years. He can't walk. They go, silver and gold have we none, but what we have we give to you in the name of Jesus. And, and they heal this man. And then this crowd starts forming, and so they start preaching the name of Jesus, and they get arrested. And now we're a couple weeks later, and they're, and they're doing a whole bunch more miracles. They're doing a whole bunch more healing. And then again, they start preaching in the name of Jesus, and again, they get arrested. And now this angel is coming along and he's saying, hey, that thing that just got you arrested, I want you to go back out and do it again. Which I think the apostles would have a little bit of a, a pushback to. And, you know, if they're, they're thinking about it at all, they're probably going, well, it's probably three strikes and you're out, right? I mean, next time we get arrested, it's probably not going to be a, a, a slap on the wrist. It's probably not going to be a rap on our knuckles. It's probably going to put us into some serious trouble. And this is important because if God had freed them for their own comfort, then he wouldn't have told them to go back into the temple. They could have left. They could have gotten out of Jerusalem. I mean, God did say go to the ends of the earth, so they could have had a jump start on that one. But no, God was doing something in Jerusalem. He was doing something in the hearts of the Sadducees. He was doing something in the hearts of the Jewish population and so he goes to these apostles and says, you need to go back and finish that work because that's what I'm in the middle of doing. And so look, my question for each and every one of you tonight, and I'm gonna come back to this again and again, is what has God actually called you to? What is the call that God has on your life? Where has he placed you? so that you can be a strategic instrument of his for the mission and kingdom of God. And this is, I'm gonna come back to that question again and again tonight, but I wanna pose it right at the outset of tonight's message because I want you to be thinking about it. I, I want it ticking away in the back of your head. I want you to be praying about it. And importantly, I would like the Holy Spirit to start convicting you on what that thing is. Because I promise God has called you to something. God has rescued you for some purpose. He has a plan for your life and he has a plan for what he wants you to do. And, and I wanna be very careful right at the outset because I, I don't want you to just go straight to like ministry because that's where most of our brains probably go. That, you know, if God's got a calling in my life, it must be some sort of ministry area or, or serving in some area. And look, if God is calling you into that space, that is awesome. You should be obedient to that. But I don't know, I think we have this sort of, this false dichotomy in our head of like the divide between secular and sacred. And we say the only way God can actually use us, the only way he can actually have a calling on our life is if it's something that's like explicitly related to church or related to mission. But I don't think that's actually how things work. That you can just as much be obedient to the calling on your life by rocking up to Monday as a plumber as you can by being a pastor. You can just as much be doing God's work in your life as a maths teacher as you can by being a missionary. And so again, I just want to pose that question. I'm going to come back to it, and I just want you to be thinking about it as we walk through the rest of this story. All right, verse 21. And when they, the apostles, heard this, they entered into the temple at daybreak, and they began to teach. And I love that because the apostles respond with immediate obedience. They don't stop to pray about it. They don't go in and open up their Bible and try to find some scriptures that support what this angel is telling them to do. Uh, they don't go and form a little committee and work out if they should do the thing that God has explicitly told them to do because 
for some reason, Christians like forming committees to work out if they should do what God has already told us. No, they just get on with it. They just do what God has told them. And see, I think as Christians, and I've done this so many times, we get caught in this cycle, right? Where we read a clear instruction in Scripture, or we get like a specific instruction or a word from God, and then we pray about it and we wait. We're waiting for some sort of clarification, some sort of update, a little bit more detail, and then we pray a little bit more, and then we wait. And then we pray a little bit more, and we wait some more, and we get stuck in the cycle of praying and waiting and praying and waiting and praying and waiting, and we never actually get on with the business of getting stuff done. And look, I am 100% pro prayer. You should pray about things. That is important. You should seek godly counsel on issues that you are contemplating whether or not you should do, but I think as Christians we can get caught in this mindset of not knowing whether or not something is from God, and so we just wait, and we wait, and we wait, and we wait. And so look, as I was walking through this this week, I, I asked myself a question that really convicted me. How would your walk with God look different if every time he told you to do something, you immediately responded with yes? Would you have gone on that, that, that dry season of your faith where God seemed really, really far away? Would you have missed that opportunity that he actually called you out into, but you, you were too busy praying about that, you didn't actually end up walking in it? Would your family and friends know God better? Would more people in your life have a relationship with Jesus? Like, how would things look different if, if God told you something or you read something in the Bible and it was a clear instruction and you just said yes? Because I, I know personally, my life would look very different. Um, there, there would be entire seasons of my life that I could have bypassed because God gave me a clear word at the start of it and I wasn't sure if this is you or not God and so I just did my own thing and then three years later it's like, oh, that, that actually was God back there. And, and see, for the apostles, what we're told in this situation is they're given a clear instruction and the instruction is preach all the words of this life. In other words, just, just preach the gospel. And so again, they enter at daybreak. They don't, they don't sleep in, they don't, they don't wait around, they, they just get on with it. And verse 21, now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought. All right, so we're shifting scenes a little bit here. We've gone from uh, the apostles teaching uh, in the temple, and now we're shifting scenes to uh, the Sanhedrin, the court of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, uh, a group of 70 religious leaders, and they're basically getting ready to hold trial uh, over the apostles. Uh, but when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. And so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. I feel sorry for whoever had to deliver that news to the, everyone else. Um, now, now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, these men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and they are teaching the people. All right, I, I don't know about you, but I do feel a little bit of sympathy towards the Sadducees here. 
I, I mean, sure, they're trying to end the whole Christian movement, so that's not a good thing, but like, they just arrested these guys a couple of weeks ago, right? And in their minds, they, they think the apostles are doing the wrong thing, they're preaching heresy, and so they tell them off, they tell them to stop doing it, and they let them go. And now a couple of weeks later, they're, they're doing it again, and so you arrest them again, you're like, okay, we're, gonna, we're gonna tell them off again, and we're gonna stop with this, everything that's going on here. And like, it would have been bad enough if the apostles sort of disappeared in the night, right? Because then at the very, very least, the Sadducees look incompetent because they've arrested people and they can't even hold them in prison. Uh, but the, the, these apostles, they've actually gone back to the temple and they've kicked right back off where they were yesterday. I mean, how frustrating must that have been for the Sadducees? What do you do with a people like that? What do you do with a people that, no matter how many times you tell them, don't preach the name of Jesus, they just keep on preaching the name of Jesus? What do you do with the people who are relentlessly obedient to the word of God? And, and you know what makes this worse for the Sadducees? And I don't know if it's just me that's gonna find this funny, but the Sadducees don't believe in angels. So they're, they're gonna eventually bring the apostles in and they'll be like, okay, how did you guys get out of our maximum security prison? And the apostles are gonna go, it was an angel. <laughs> uh, to which the Sadducees would have, again, just blown up because they don't believe that's actually a thing. Um, but again, it's almost like the things of this world, they no longer have a sway over the apostles. They can just do whatever God has called them to do because nothing else really matters. And so, verse 26, when the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So again, notice that escalation in the story here because last time they rocked up with swords and spears and they, they forced the apostles to go and now it's like, hey, can you guys come with us, please? We, we don't wanna upset everyone here. Um, in verse 27, and when they brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And that's, that's a really important verse. And if you've got a Bible in front of you, I would highlight that verse. I would underline it. And we're gonna come back to it in a second. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. All right, so, so you've got to love Peter, right? Uh, this is the second time he's on trial for preaching the name of Jesus, and so uh, he uses the trial as a platform to continue preaching the name of Jesus. And to be honest, I think the Sadducees are probably sick of Peter because every time he's preached, he said the exact same thing, almost like word for word. Uh, you guys killed Jesus, God raised him from the dead, repent and believe. Uh, so Sadducees are like, yep, get on with it. We've heard this before, but uh, Peter does actually say something that's a bit new to his um, repertoire. Uh, so he calls Jesus his leader and his savior. And that's important for two reasons. So firstly, it's the first time Jesus is explicitly called the savior outside of the gospels, which is interesting in and of itself. But secondly, Peter calls Jesus his leader. And that word, the uh, leader, is 
Ochego, that's probably not how you pronounce it, Sandy can correct me later. <laughs> and it can be translated as prince, captain, leader, or founder. So to put that in the sort of language that is more familiar to you and me today, what Peter is saying here is that Jesus is Lord of his life. That yes, he is his salvation. Yes, he has rescued him. Yes, he has set him free, but he isn't just fire insurance. It's not just Peter's get out of jail free card. It's not just about what happens when Peter dies and his entrance into heaven. Uh, Peter is saying here in this moment that Jesus is Lord over his life in the right here and now. And so what I think Peter is saying is he's saying, look, that means Jesus gets to tell me exactly what he wants me to do. And if he says go, I'm gonna go. And if he says stay, I'm gonna stay. And right now what Jesus has told me is he's told me to come into the temple and preach the words of this life. So that's exactly what I'm gonna do. And above and beyond that, uh, Jesus told Peter that he is gonna be his witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of this earth. So I think Peter is looking around, he's going, yep, I am in Jerusalem right now. And so that means I am gonna be a witness to Jesus. And if that means I'm his witness in the temple courts preaching to thousands, that is awesome. God gets all the glory for that. If that means he's gonna be his, uh, Jesus' witness in the, te- the court where he is right now to 70 people who want nothing to do with Jesus, then that is awesome as well. And if that means that he's gonna be a witness to the two jailers that they put over him, then he is happy with that as well. Because God has told him to be a witness and so he is just gonna do what his king has commanded him. See, what Peter understands and what Peter means when he says we must obey God rather than men is that either he is gonna be relentlessly obedient to the call of God on his life or he is gonna be obedient to the call of man on his life. But he cannot be obedient to both. That either Jesus is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Can I just say there are a whole lot of things in this world that want you to call them their Lord? A whole lot of things in this world that have a plan for your life. See, Jeremiah 29, 11, and actually don't put it on the screen yet, because I, I want to see if you guys know this. Uh, so, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the, Lord's, uh, the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to, yep, plans to give you a, and a future, awesome. So you guys, you guys have it memorized, and, and most uh, Christians, in fact, a lot of non-Christians probably at least know of that verse, right? Uh, we've got it memorized, we've got it on coffee cups. Uh, you've probably at least, there's probably at least one grandma who's got it stitched and hanging over a wall in their house. Uh, but the problem is with this verse, is that we know it so well, and we jump straight to the bits that are about you and me. Like we read plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future, and we're like, yep, I want some of that. Give me some prosperity, give me some hope, give me a bright future, give me plans that don't harm me, that sounds amazing. Jesus, I claim that, I name it, it's mine, I'm gonna take a hold of that verse. And we sort of skim over the first little bit there, where God, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, says, I know the plans that I have. That church, they're God's plans. They're not our plans. They're not our parents' plans. They're not the world's plans. They're God's plans. 
And again, there are a whole lot of things in this world that will make that same promise over you, that they will turn to you and say, I know the plans I have for you. See, if you're honest with yourself, I think some of you in this room are probably obedient to the plans that your parents had for your life. That your parents wanted you to have a certain career or to be able to live a certain style of life, that they want you to be able to do certain things. And if you actually stop and look back at your life, at the the programs you attended, the school you went to, the youth group you were a part of, the degrees you studied, the job you're working, um, maybe even the, the partner you have, a whole lot of that was your parents' plan for your life. And look, there's nothing wrong with your parents having good intentions for your life and wanting you to succeed and do well. That is a really godly thing to happen, but we need to be careful that we do not conform our lives to the image, to our parents' image of success or health or family. That we need to conform our lives to God's plan for us. Some of us were obedient to the pain in our lives that you've gone through serious trauma, serious heartache, and I don't want to sugarcoat it, I don't want to make light of it, but from that moment on, your identity changed. And you started to act like that event gets to dictate the plans for the rest of your life. And maybe it was abuse or bankruptcy or whatever it is, and it's like now you just believe the lies that that pain has for your life. You believe the word that it says of your life that you're never going to be financially stable again. Or that you're never going to be able to have a real relationship again. You're never going to be able to get married. You're never going to be able to intimate with someone. You're never going to be able to healthy again. That the, the pain in your life has a plan for you and it's not God's plan. And it is speaking a word over your life and it is not God's word for your life. And it's like, if you look at how you're living now, if you look at the things you do and the things you don't do, the things you're maybe afraid to do, if you're honest, you're actually being obedient to that moment of pain in your life. Some of you, and look, I've been there, and this is, I still struggle with this daily, is we're obedient to the plans that the world has for our life. And I think that that's a fairly straightforward thing to see because what the world will say to us is, you know, you study hard at school so you can get a good Uh, So you can get into a good university and then you study hard at university so you can get a good job and then you get a good job so you can earn lots of money and then with lots of money you can go on lots of vacations and you can have a big home and you can have a good car and then you can retire really early and drive around collecting seashells. And like, again, nothing wrong with having a big house, nothing wrong with going on holidays or or, or wanting to, to have financial stability, but... Can we just agree that's a really inward-focused view of life? And it's like, if you're honest, whatever social cause is trending, whatever the current in thing is, whatever the life goal that everyone else is seeking after, that is what you are obedient to. See, the truth of the matter is there's actually only one thing, one plan in this life that is worth being obedient to. And it doesn't come from anywhere here on earth. It only comes from God. And so verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. So again, escalation, because that's all this section of scripture is about. It's escalation. We've gone from greatly annoyed at the teaching, uh, filled with the spirit of jealousy, and now they just want to kill the people. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up 
and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. All right, so we've got this older guy, Gamaliel, and, and he gets up and everyone is enraged, everyone's emotional, and he's like, okay, just calm down for a minute. Let's, let's talk about this. Uh, and that's why we need older people in our lives because they have the ability to actually do that and, and speak over our emotions. And verse 35, and he says to them, men of Israel, take care with what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. And he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and they came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census, and he drew away some of the people after him, and he too perished. And all who followed him were scattered. So essentially what Gamaliel is saying here is, look, this, this isn't a new situation. And he gives these two historical examples, Thutis and Judas, uh, awesome names if you're looking for baby boy names, I guess. Actually, no, stay clear from Judas. That's <laughs> not a good move. Um, Thutis and Judas. And, and we actually have historical evidence for these guys. Uh, so we, we know they were real people, that they existed. But uh, essentially what Gamaliel is saying here is that, look, in the last 50 years, there have been two examples of people who have gathered a following, who have created a movement, and then when their leader died, the movement just broke apart. And so, verse 38, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In fact, you might even be found opposing God. Look, essentially, Gamaliel's advice is this, that one of two things is going to happen here. On the one hand, maybe this, this isn't of God. This whole Jesus movement, it's just a fad, and, you know, uh, Peter and John, they're just really good communicators, and they can build a following, and if that's the case, then, look, their leader's dead, Jesus has been crucified, and, and so if that's the case, it's going to peter out on its own. We're not going to need to do anything, we're not going to need to arrest these guys, it'll all end by itself. But, and in a couple of years' time, it's going to be a, a no-name thing that no one will even remember, but... If it is from God, then there is nothing we can do to stop it. In fact, we may actually end up on the wrong side of things here. We may end up opposing God, and I don't know about you guys, but we're sort of supposed to be on God's team here, so that doesn't sound like a really good plan to me. So look, that's what Gamaliel's advice is for that specific situation. And what I want to ask you again tonight is, is how would you take that advice and sort of apply it to your life. What, what does that look like? Because if I'm being honest, I think a whole bunch of us here tonight, we actually, we, we know what God has called us to do. We know the sort of things he wants us to do, the sort of things he doesn't want us to do in our lives. We, we, we know the, the plan that he has laid out before us, and you're sort of just standing on this precipice, right? And you're trying to decide, do I actually do what he's told me to do? Do I, do I actually follow with uh, relentless obedience to what God has called me to do? Do I take that step of faith? And if you're honest, the only reason you haven't been obedient to that call is because you're afraid. You're afraid because you don't know what you're going to do if you've heard God wrong and this isn't actually what he's calling you to do. 
And what I think Amela's advice would say to that situation as well, if it's from God, then you don't have anything to fear because nothing is going to be able to stop it. Essentially, Gamaliel's, Gamaliel's advice is like, go for it. <laughs> Just do it. Stop questioning. Stop doubting. Stop trying to work out if this is right or not. If you think it's in line with God's character, if you think it's in line with God's will, if it's in line with what Scripture teaches, if you think there's any possibility that this is what God is actually calling you to do in your life, then just do it. Just take that step of faith. And look, if it's not from God, then that's okay. Because what will happen then is in a couple months' time, you'll, you'll pick yourself up, you'll, you'll dust yourself off, and you'll get on with life. And you'll go back to the last thing you know that God actually called you to do. And again, I'm not encouraging recklessness here. I'll be careful. I'm not saying you shouldn't pray about things. But again, I think of, as Christians, we are so afraid of taking that step, of stepping out in faith and just doing what God has called us to, that we just sit there and we wait. And we wait for someone or something to come and push us over the edge. And I don't think that's how God works most of the time. So as we finish this off tonight and the band can start coming up, I want to come back to that first question. What is it that God is calling you to do? See, maybe, maybe you're here and if you're honest, you're actually studying the wrong thing. You're at uni and you're working hard and you're honoring God with the work of your hands, yes and amen, but if you actually look at what you're studying and the pathway it opens up for you when you finish your studies, you realize it's not actually God's call on your life. And if that's you tonight, then maybe you need to change degrees. But you need to realign yourself with the direction and the path that God has for you and you need to change. And look, maybe that actually means you drop out of uni. And I know that's sort of a sacrilegious thing to say in, in this day and age, but it is not God's call that everyone would go to uni. And I say that as someone who spent seven and a half years at uni. So um, take from that as what you will. And again, not calling anyone to be lazy or to drop out of uni and just be a bum, but God has a calling on your life. And it doesn't mean you have to do what everyone else is doing. Maybe it means you start a trade or you start a business or you, you start being an entrepreneur that you can just do things different from the way the world does. Look, maybe you're here tonight and you've been in the same job for the last 20 years. And, and maybe God is actually calling you to change it up a bit. Maybe for someone in the room, God is actually calling you to go and start your own business. And, and He's calling you to do the, the same sort of things you're doing now, the same sort of work, but in a way that honors God more, in a way that establishes Christian values, in a way that allows you to employ other Christians and just do work in a way that is fundamentally different to the way the world does work. To create a business culture that, that is distinctly Christian and to have a real and meaningful influence on your community around you. Maybe you're here and, and you've sort of, you've finished work. That, that's, that's sort of season of your life is done. And look, maybe if that's you, God is calling you to come back and actually pour back into the next generation. 
Because a life spent collecting seashells is, is not really a life I think the kingdom is calling us to. And, and look, I'm, I'm here at, at youth every Friday night and young adults, and I, and I tell you, there are people in that age bracket that, that need older people in their lives who can come and actually pour back godly wisdom into that space. Who, who can say, look, I've walked where you've walked before. I've made those mistakes before. Do it a little bit different. Do, do, do things a little bit different and your life will be better. You, you'll be closer to God. You'll, you'll have a more meaningful relationship with other people. Uh, look, it's, it's Mother's Day and I know this is a bit of a weird Mother's Day message. Maybe you're here tonight and, and again, please, please, please let this be the Holy Spirit speaking, not me speaking, because if it's me, ignore me. Maybe you're here tonight and you actually need to step back a little bit from work. And you need, to spend, you need to spend some more time at home. Again, not because I said it, because the Holy Spirit has convicted you. Maybe there are some people in this room that actually need to go back to work and spend more time at work because your, your children need a little bit more space as well. I, I don't know, that's what God needs to say. And may, maybe for a very few of you, maybe God is calling you into ministry. Maybe there, there is something that God has for you that he wants you to step away from what you're doing now and just do something completely radically different. Look, again, I feel like I say this every week, but if it's me speaking, ignore it. (laughs) Because I I don't want to be telling you what to do. I want want to create a space where the Holy Spirit can lead you and convict you. But I promise God has a calling on your life. God has a plan for what he wants you to be doing. He has a plan for, for where he wants you to be doing work, where he wants you to be doing family, how he wants you to be doing family, how he wants you to do with your money. God has a plan for all of that. And it's, it's really different from the way the world does things. And so look, there's really two things I would like everyone to take away from this message tonight. Firstly, I would like everyone to follow Peter's example. That Peter's example is we live a life that is radically obedient to what God has called us to that we recognize the fact that God has rescued us, He has redeemed us, He has freed us, but He has not done that for our own preferences, but for His purposes. And secondly, I would like everyone to take Gamaliel's advice. That if the thing that God is calling you from, if it is from God, then nothing in this world can stop it. And if God has told us to do something and it doesn't make sense, we just step out in faith knowing that he is in control of all things and then it will not fail. And so verse 40, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. There, I'm not promising things are gonna be easy. The apostles are doing all the right things and they get beaten. In fact, the word there is probably more accurately uh, translated as flogged or thrashed, that it was severe. The church, it was worth it. And they, they left a beating that would have left anyone else scarred, rejoicing and praising God. So look, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna close tonight and, and the, the rest of the band can come up and we're gonna, we're gonna respond in two ways. We're gonna respond by singing like we normally do, but we're also gonna, enter into a time of communion. Uh, so the elements are here at the front and in a second I'll invite everyone to come up and grab them. And um, we're gonna take communion together because it's something Jesus told us to do. 
And so we're going to be obedient to that thing before we're obedient to the rest of the things in our life. So uh, would, would you come forward and, and take the elements and then we'll eat and drink together. I just thank you that you have rescued each and every one of us. That whether you've rescued us from addiction or debt or, or, or anger in our lives or depression or just the broken nature of our sinful self, Lord, you have saved us. You have redeemed us. You have rescued us. And then, Lord, I, I just pray you would convict each and every one of us. that we would not let that rescue be a rescue for the sake of it. Lord, that we would recognize that you have called each and every one of us by name, for a reason, for a purpose. That you died so that we may glorify you here on this earth and then in eternity. So Lord, we, we thank you for your, your salvation. We thank you for your rescue. And we take these elements in remembrance of Lord, we thank you for your body broken for us. We thank you for your blood poured out for our sake. And Holy Spirit, I I just pray that right now as as we're taking these elements and we're remembering the fact that we have been saved, that you would just bring to mind whatever the, the next thing you have for us to do is that you would reveal to us the calling that you have placed on each and every one of our lives. And then you'll give us the courage to walk that out. In your name.